Well, greetings, brothers and sisters, and may the peace of God be with you. As uh, Pro Professor Muller introduced me, my name is Jerry Zhao. I'm currently the uh, associate pastor at Milton Missionary Baptist Church, and as and I was uh, one of the students of uh, Professor Muller's uh, class at uh, Toronto Baptist Seminary, and I stand before you today with a profound sense of gratitude and humility, and I want to extend my heartfelt thanks to Pastor Muller and the elders team and all of you at Providence Baptist Church for the invitation and the privilege of sharing God's word with you. And before I begin, let us have another prayer. Father God, I, Father God, I pray that you will cleanse in me and fill me, uh, this unworthy servant of yours. I pray that, Lord, I will uh, faithfully preach your word, uh, which is perfect and good. And also pray that the Holy Spirit will be with us and as we uh, worship you uh, by uh, heeding to your words that um, ultimately that your name will be glorified. Amen. So the text that I'm uh, preaching from is 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, 19 to 27. And the title is Self-Denial. Uh, I had better uh, begin by explaining why did I choose this title for the sermon. So, uh, when we are trying to understand what Paul was saying in this text, uh, we must not overlook the context of the whole chapter, and thankfully we have read, read the uh, entire chapter 9. So, as you can see, in the beginning of chapter 9, Paul emphasized uh, his authority as an apostle, and then he goes on to defend himself against those who doubt his credentials. His defense mainly revolves around his right to receive material support from the Corinthians, and he argues vigorously, saying that if others are entitled to this support, and he should be entitled to it even more because he was the one who preached the gospel to them at first place. And however, surprisingly, the conclusion, which was immediately precedes today's text, is not that they should indeed support him. Instead, Paul explains and defends his decision not to accept the support and despite his entire uh, early arguments. So following this, Paul explains and defends his behavior in different uh, social settings, as we see. He aims that uh, he adapted his behavior depending on whether he was with Jews or Gentiles, aiming to connect with and evangelize as many people as possible. And in the end, he shifts to a powerful extortion, encouraging self-discipline and using himself as example. What we see here is that Paul is navigating a complex situation in chapter 9 and trying to explain his actions and choices that support his argument goes all the way back to chapter 8, verse 1. It says that this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. A Christian personal behavior is dedicated, but not by knowledge, freedom, one's own rights or law, but by the love for the gospel, hence the love for those within the community of faith, and hence the love for God. And everything one does not affect relationship with in the body of Christ should have care for brothers and sisters as its primary motivation for the sake of the gospel. And that's what Paul talking about here, because the entire narrative runs from chapter 8, verse 1, all the way to 11, verse 1. So for us, Christian love is a form of self-denial. 
Now, in today's world, one of the most significant challenges facing the Christian church in the West is the widespread idea of expressive individualism. This ideology promotes the notion that you should always stay true to yourself. And the highest goals in life are self-fulfillment and expressing your authentic self to the world. And when life revolves around the quest to discover your innermost self and showcase it, it profoundly impacts our most important relationships in the context of personal self-improvement. For instance, in the midst, in this kind of mindset, marriage often becomes about finding your soulmate, the true love, and who brings you happiness as you strive to become the best version of your unique self and believing that it's designed by a higher power. And friendship, in this perspective, tends to be reduced to a give-and-take pursuit and uh, of uh, mutual self-fulfillment, making it easy to form new connections and let go of the old ones based on how much they benefit you personally. And even within churches, there is a risk of seeing them primarily as providers of religious services and resources. Congregates may sometimes see themselves as consumers and expecting the teachings and activities of the church to enhance and enrich their individual lives. And the expressivist approach encourages you to be the captain of your own ship. And when Scripture supports your decisions, it's fantastic. And But if the Word of God dares to question your actions or mindset, you might argue that your life journey is a private matter. And the famous slogan, trust yourself, becomes the only truth that people are willing to accept in this depraved world. And every sinner's heart beats according to its rhyme. Expressive individualism encourages us to embark on an inner journey, urging us to explore the depths of our hearts to discover our true essence and reveal it to the world. And however, the gospel of Jesus Christ tells a different story. It tells us that our hearts are tainted by sin and that our deepest need is not finding true expression but about ourselves, but finding redemption, a real transformation brought about by divine grace and providence. While the world encourages us to focus inward, the gospel calls us to look upward in something greater than ourselves. And in a culture that celebrates self-expression and self-seeking, the message of the gospel stands in sharp contrast and can often face resistance. And even in the process of our sanctification, we experience such resistance within ourselves. The resistance stems from the fact that looking up implies recognizing the Savior beyond ourselves and above us, an authority that lays claim to our lives, which requires us to submit and trust a shift from self-centeredness to God-centeredness. For us, when Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, 24 to 25, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for the sake will find it. Now, self-denial is the way of Christian life because it is the way of the cross. Paul's understanding of love is built on the theology of cross. 
and he applies it to the issue at hand with the Corinthians regarding the matter of eating foods that offer to idols, which was the uh, the argument, the entire narrative from chapter eight, beginning of chapter eight, all the way to uh, chapter eleven, verse one. And the demonstration that Paul gave in chapter nine profoundly argues that we must not stand on our rights if love stands as the foremost guiding principle for our actions and behaviors. So I will break down my sermon into two points and to explain not only what Paul is saying here, but most importantly, why Paul is saying this stuff. So my first point is self-denial when you are right. Self-denial when you are right. And for this point, I'm going to explore the context for, we, for, for us to understand what Paul is actually saying here, but more importantly, why. So this self-denial when you are right, this aspect of Paul's argument in today's text becomes notably clear when we follow his line of thought from chapter 8, verse 1, all the way to chapter 11, verse 1. These passages form a coherent unit about eating uh, cultic uh, sacrifice food and driven by a few key things. And while we won't dive into the details of this argument yet in this first point of my sermon, but there's essential elements that we can swiftly summarize to underscore the point. We should not insist on our rights for the sake of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul primarily addresses the question of whether Christians should partake in meat that has been offered to the idols. And it seems that much of the meat available at that time in the market was connected to pagan temples and sacrifices, and and it was sold near uh, these places. So those Gentile Christians, previously from paganism, were often cautious about buying and consuming such meat, as they saw it as a compromising act. To them, it seemed like a form of involvement with the old pagan gods, essentially entailing them in idol worshiping. On the other hand, more mature Christians believed that this meat was just meat. They argued that placing it in front of the idol did not alter its nature, and they could, in good conscience, purchase and eat it. They refused to indulge in superstitious beliefs simply because pagans considered the idols representations of gods. So this difference of opinion led to division within the Corinthian church. Paul's approach to this issue is instructive. Later in chapter 10, he unmistakably forbids any participation in the worship rituals conducted in the pagan temple. And he underscores the danger of engaging with the demonic forces lurking behind these idols. Moreover, he emphasized that becoming involved in cultic practices aligns individuals with the fellowship of idol worshipers and the situation where Christians must avoid. However, what's interesting is that in chapter 8, Paul's reasoning takes on a more nuanced one. On one hand, as we can see, if you read chapter 8, that Paul acknowledges that buying meat uh, that was sacrificed before the idol doesn't inherently compromise one's faith. The nature of the meat remains unchanged. It's just meat. It's not something that is uh, uh, spiritual. And on the other hand, Paul recognizes that some believers who he refers as to having weak conscience, and that is to say that because they consider something evil, 
when it's not genuinely evil. So these people, they may view this act as compromising. In their case, purchasing and consuming such meat would wound their conscience. Paul deems it's risky for Christians to defile their conscience because if they develop a habit of ignoring their conscious voice, they may continue to do so even when their conscience correctly warns them away from something that is genuinely evil. So that's why Paul urges them to protect their conscience. Over time, Paul hopes for these, uh, he called weak uh, brothers and sisters, that they will grow in their understandings of the scripture and the gospel, so they won't view something as evil that is isn't, like eating meat sacrificed to idols. However, until they reach such maturity, Paul advised against going against their own conscience. And meanwhile, Paul offers guidance to those with strong conscience. Strong because they are sufficiently informed and do not label anything as evil when it's not generally evil. And especially on this matter of meat offered to idols, Paul acknowledges that they may be correct in their perspective on this issue. But he emphasizes that the conversation, the issue itself, should, shouldn't stop here because they have an additional responsibility toward their weaker brothers and sisters in Christ. Consider this scenario. If those of a weaker conscience were to witness uh, a strong Christian, a seasoned one who's been in church a long time, eating the meat that had been offered to idols, they might be encouraged to do the same, but not in a good conscience, but rather in the weak conscience, thinking that it's okay to, obey, uh, to disobey God. And this could lead them to act against their own conscience, resulting in spiritual harm. And for the strong believers to insist on their rights in such a situation would be heartless. Paul's words are moving. He says, first, that sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 12 to 13. In essence, Paul underscores the principle of love and consideration within the Christian community. It's not just about knowing what's right or wrong, which sometimes we think that's all it is. It is also about how our actions affect our fellow believers. If indulging in a particular freedom could lead a weaker brother or sister down a destructive path, then out of love, we should be willing to set aside the freedom for their sake, which is our right. And this reflects the heart of Christian love, where our actions are guided by compassion and the well-being of others, even if it means sacrificing our own rights and desires. Let's grasp this crucial point in Paul's argument. It is not about manipulating believers with strong conscience to conform to believers with weak conscience who insist on uni, uh, uh, uniform obedience to certain rules. Instead, Paul's message is about urging those with strong convictions to willingly surrender their rights for the sake of the others. At its core, this appeal is rooted in the love for our fellow brothers in Christ, uh, and sisters in Christ, and you see, strong Christians might be absolutely correct in their theological stance. 
And, but unless they willingly relinquish what rightfully belongs to them, they risk harming the church and in doing so, sin against Christ. And it's a profound thought to consider. Standing firm on your rights may inevitably lead you into sin. And not the sin tied to your rights. Because in that regard, you are indeed in rights. You're right. But the sin of lacking love. The sin of being unwilling to set aside your rights for the greater spiritual and eternal benefit of the others. Imagine this. Can we, as Christians, stand before the cross and admirably insist on our own rights? Reflect it for a moment. It wasn't our right to demand Jesus Christ to sacrifice himself on that cross. In fact, Jesus possessed every right to abstain from the cross and judge us according to our sins. Yet, in the profound act of divine love and providence and mercy, he willingly surrendered his rights and chose love. Therefore, he went on to the cross. And it's vital to grasp that this love did not compromise the truth. It beautifully manifested. The cross served as the ultimate revelation of God's holiness and justice wrapped in the embrace of love. And our salvation emanates from this love. We are reborn through it. And consequently, self-denial becomes the guiding principle of our new life in the Holy Spirit. For the sake of the love that permits the gospel, Paul boldly offers himself as an example for strong Christians to emulate. He declares that, therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. This verse serves a bridge to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where Paul develops into an explanation of his own motives and self-discipline later on. But before we transition to the next point in my sermon, I want to encourage everyone in this congregation to truly reflect this application here as we delve deeper into the understanding that genuine love often necessitates us setting aside our rights, just as Christ laid down his life for us. Let's embrace the profound and humbling truth that our Christian journey isn't about self-assertion, but about selfless service and care for one another. We are called to mirror the love exemplified by our Savior. This doesn't mean compromising our principles for this or forsaking truth, but it does mean placing love at the forefront of our discernment and recognizing that it doesn't change the nature of judgment according to the truth, but profoundly influences the actions that follow it. For instance, churches sometimes face difficult decisions when it comes to church discipline like asking someone to step down or even leave the congregation. Prior to taking such action, there's always a leadership meeting to discuss the matter. Unfortunately, I've been in these meetings quite a few times over the past decade. Uh, for what I've witnessed, these meetings generally fall into two categories. In one scenario, you enter the meeting and you hear people saying, he or she is clearly in the wrong has sinned against God and violates the teachings of the scripture and is causing trouble. We need to remove them from the church. 
And the other scenario involves entering in the meeting and hearing people saying that he or she is clearly in the wrong, has sinned against God, and violates the teaching of the Scriptures, and we must imply discipline. But let's pray and make every effort to restore that person. In the first scenario, hardly anyone returns. And bitterness festers on both sides. However, in the second scenario, I've seen individuals come back to faith and to the church with a genuine repentance. Love built, brothers and sisters. And therefore, Paul in chapter 8, verse 1 says that this knowledge puffs up. He's not saying that theology is not good. But the good theology is that to see that love builds up. It's not saying that we don't need to learn theology, but to say that love is the first guiding principle of our life. The love according to the truth, which is we found and witness in the love that has manifested and revealed to us on the cross in Jesus Christ. So in our actions and behaviors, we must mirror the love exemplified by our Savior. And the second point in my sermon is self-denial in witnessing the gospel. Self-denial in witnessing the gospel. So, you see, this entire argument of Paul, this entire section in 1 Corinthians, is very long, so I have to explain the context in order to show you not just the one verse or two verses what Paul is saying, but rather why he said this stuff. And so, my second point, self-denial in witnessing the gospel, as we can see that what was leading up to verse uh, 19 in chapter 9 was that Paul's devotion and commitment to his calling as an apostle compels him to make a deliberate choice to relinquish one of his rights, the right to financial support. He understands that this decision will come at a cost, requiring extra time, effort, labor, and take likelihood of being misunderstood. And yet, and enables him to preach the gospel free of charge, serving as a living embodiment of the freedom of grace. What's more, it demonstrates that he serves not out of obligation, but from a transformed heart and will, storing up treasures in heaven through God's grace. Paul's primary concern is showcasing that his ministry flows from a transformed inner being a deep desire to putting God in the center rather than putting himself in the center. And if the path to demonstrating this commitment involves forsaking some of his rights, so be it. Paul gladly embraces his self-denial. And this is precisely the point that Paul says in 19, verse 19 in chapter 9. Though I'm free and belong to no one, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Well, the Corinthians may have criticized Paul for not demanding a, a, a fee. And he rejoices in his principled self-denial. And this approach influences every aspect of his ministry as he navigates the tension between his freedom in Christ and his voluntary servitude to all. Paul's personal exp- uh, example carries significant weight in addressing the relatively minor issue raised in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Whether Christians should consume meat offered to idols, that was in chapter 8, right? So this is evident in his words in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 20-22, where he states, To the Jews I become like Jews, 
And, 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 and to those not having the law, I, be, I became the, like not having the law. And to weak, I become weak to win the weak. These statements harken back to his earlier discussion about accommodating weak Christians. However, Paul's example transcends the specific matter of the meat offered to the idols. It has become his way of life. It's not just on this issue, but a way of life, a living demonstration of what it means to take up one's cross and follow Jesus. Paul exemplifies what it means to be a, a Christian that is witnessing the gospel and someone who adopts for the sake of the gospel. The message is clear, brothers and sisters. We must not stumbly cling to our rights. If the defense of our rights remains our guiding star, we risk straying from the path of the cross, which is the path of selfless love and service exemplified by Jesus. And this level of self-denial is easier said than done. It's one thing to admire this principle in others, but the true power of this approach becomes evident when we ourselves are called upon to surrender our rights. Even in our homes, many conflicts arise because neither side wants to yield a point. We often fight to protect our rights. Some of the most challenging tests of our willingness to relinquish our rights occur when we are with our loved ones. And I have learned it in the hard way. My wife and I, Sabrina, despite both being Chinese, come from a very different cultural backgrounds. The place, uh, I, I, I've grown from a region in China where it, it's common to speak loudly, even in the conversa day, uh, normal conversations. Uh, if you were to visit, uh, visit my hometown and uh, step into a restaurant, your first thought would not be which dish on the menu is tasty that you would like to order, but whether you will wonder, is there a fight about to break out in the entire restaurant? And because similarly, everybody is shouting at each other. And, but don't get me wrong, they weren't hungry. They were perfectly fine, happy and peaceful. It's just the culture norm. And on the other hand, my wife's upbringing was in culture where people speak softly, gently, and she embodies that tree as well. And due to our cultural differences, my wife is sensitive to loud speaking volumes, often interpreting as a sign of anger. This is once I was on the phone with my parents and uh, engaging in a casual conversation with my mother, you know, just talking about uh, things in normal. And then so my wife was with me, but, and also because we, uh, we do speak Mandarin together, but we also speak uh, different uh, dialects. In our, uh, according to our different uh, province in China, so she wouldn't understand what I was saying. So I was talking to my mother, and then she suddenly started tagging my arm and saying, that, "Calm down! What's going on? Why are you and your parents are fighting? What what happened?" And I turned to her and said, "That no, no, no nothing's wrong. Nothing. My mom just explaining to me that she telling me that she she had extra." Uh, avocado to my dad's breakfast to make it more healthier and tasty this morning. It was a normal conversation. But my mother was like, what's going on? Are you guys fighting? No. So, as you could probably imagine, Sabrina and I had our fair share of arguments stemming from these differences a lot in, the, in our life. She will often accuse me of being angry with, with her because of my speaking value. And while I would 
defend my right to speak as I do. I'm saying that, honey, you know what? This is all you thinking. It's, it's not true. I'm not angry. And this is who I am. This is me. And this is my right. I, and, you know, you should, you should accept who I am. And then one day, while i reading 1 Corinthians chapter 8 to 9, by God's grace, I realized that what a fool I had been. Not only had I been neglecting my wife's feelings, but I had also failed to be an effective witness to the gospel. I had been showing my wife what was right, but I had neglected to show her love. And so I went to her, sincerely apologized, and promised her that from the day forward, I will speak at a volume that made her feel safe and loved. And my motivation for change wasn't solely to be a better husband, but to be a faithful Christian, witnessing the transformative power of the gospel. And my wife was deeply moved on that day. And as we prayed together, she didn't thank God for making me gentler, and but praise God for the visible work of the gospel in our lives and His faithfulness to His promise of salvation. And you see, brothers and sisters, Paul constantly drives home, uh, 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 consistently drives home a provincial point throughout his teachings. The significance of adapting and sacrificing personal rights for the greater good of spreading the gospel and nurturing Christian unity. And he repeatedly underscores this principle, emphasizing the importance of accommodating others for the sake of their spiritual well-being, according to the gospel. And this is the way witnessing the gospel. And Paul's words echo with profound meaning. I have made myself a servant to all. He declares that I may win more of them. And he, he, he continued further illustrating. He, he puts it, to the Jews I became as Jew in order to win Jews. And to the weak I became weak that I may win the weak. And Paul's overreaching object is clear. In verse 22, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Even in his closing words on the matter, on this matter, and this entire narrative concerning eating idol uh, foods that sac- uh, sacrifice to idols, Paul reaffirms this mission in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 31 to chapter 11, verse 1. Paul says that, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, give no offense to Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Some may wonder if Paul's occasional appeal to the Roman citizenship is similarly a defense to of his rights, contradicts his principle here. However, Paul's actions are not about asserting rights for their own sake, but about achieving a greater purpose. And for instance, when it comes to dietary choices, if eating a particular food does not jeopardize anyone's faith, Paul would gladly partake. And nevertheless, in situations where he faces physical harm, or legal persecution that could uh, hinder the progress of the gospel, he invokes his Roman citizenship. And this strategy he used 
um, to use his rights, aims at safeguarding the church and ensuring that the message of Christ can continue to spread. In essence, Paul's decisions are driven by a profound principle, the advancement of the gospel. And in the grand tapestry of Christian life, there may be occasions when defending one's right aligns with the greater purpose, just as Paul did with the Roman citizenship. However, the guiding question should always be, how will this course of action contribute to or hinder the work of the gospel? It is important to recognize that self-denial cannot be an end in itself. The end is always the cross, the gospel of Jesus Christ. To become so understanding and flexible that one can soon further the gospel anywhere, wherever they're at it. And it's in your family, it's in your workplace, it's in your school, it's everywhere. When you go, you not only preach the gospel, you live out the gospel to show them the love of Jesus Christ. So as, as I'm drawing this, wrap it up in the conclusion. You see that Paul arrives at his conclusion in verse 23. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul's words here carry a deep and passionate message. When we read that I may share with them in its blessings, we might have expected him to focus on others benefiting from the gospel. However, Paul's emphasis is different and incredibly profound. He's telling us that he couldn't possibly envision any other way to live as a true Christian. He's so committed to promoting the gospel that he's willing to go to great lengths, practicing rigorous self-denial, all for the sake of experiencing the gospel's blessings himself. What does this mean? It means that Paul's actions are not just about helping others, They're about his personal journey with the gospel. He believes that being a follower of the crucified Messiah, Jesus Christ, requires a daily commitment to taking up his own cross, letting go of self-interest, and dedicating himself to serving the one who redeemed him. For Paul, there's simply no other way to effectively spread the gospel. Living out the gospel in this way, by sacrificing self Interest, surrendering any claim to personal rights, and actively striving to bring as many people as possible into this fold is, in Paul's view, the true essence of following Christ crucified. It mirrors the uh, selflessness and sacrifice of Jesus himself, who willingly gave up his divine rights and laid down his life to save people from all nations, those who he loves. And in essence, Paul is teaching us that genuine Christianity goes beyond receiving the gospel's blessing. It's about actively participating in its proclamation and realization. By adopting this approach, we not only align ourselves with the very heart of Christ's mission, but also become instruments of the gospel's life-changing power. It's a passionate call to live out our faith in a way that reflects the heart of Jesus and truly shares in the profound blessings of the gospel. The closing paragraph of chapter 9, 
1 Corinthians chapter 9, delivers a powerful message using athletic metaphors of running and boxing. Paul urges the Corinthians believers to approach their Christian journey like athletes competing for a prize, just as Olympians require self-discipline, self-denial, and rigorous training, so do Christians in their faith. Paul exemplifies this discipline by his own life, and he expects every Christian to adopt a similar mindset. Just as aimless shadow in boxing or casual strolls through medals won't win, win the, the medals, an easygoing approach to the Christian walk won't lead to spiritual victory. Paul acknowledges that even he could be disqualified if he deviated from the race. Now, that does not mean we earn our salvation by our works, but being saved by Jesus Christ will transform us into a new being which bears the fruits of the gospel. And a genuine question, according to Paul, and also the rest of the New Testament offers, is the one who perseveres, perseveres by the grace of God. This perseverance is tightly linked to Paul's ministry, meaning he strives to share the blessings of the gospel through his self-denial and dedication. Perseverance is the constant theme in Paul's teachings, emphasizing the importance of enduring in the Christian faith. Well, Paul doesn't suggest that every Christian must serve exactly as he does. He passionately desires uh, us to embrace the same self-denying attitude he embodies. For him, it's not an optional add-on. It's integral to being a Christian, insisting on personal rights but lacking love, especially for those considered strong in their faith, is in essence a sin against Christ. So in the end, brothers and sisters, Paul's message underscores the calling of our Lord to every one of his followers that they should deny themselves and take up the cross and follow the Lord. This is the way of the cross, and it defines what it means to be a faithful and genuine Christian. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your perfect and wonderful words. And as we uh, pray to you, Father, I pray that help us, help us to appreciate your faithfulness. Help us to appreciate your grace, your providence. For we are saved not by our own works or merits, but by the grace of Jesus Christ. And we see that this grace is powerful. It not only saved us from our transgressions and sins against you, but also it empowers us to give us a new life. So, for we are called into a, a, a as a new creation that's waiting for a new heaven and earth. And Father, I pray that help us to persevere and help us to uh, enter this self-denial, not seeing this as a loss, but seeing this as a gain. Because Lord, we are. Uh, the ultimate satisfaction is in you. And help us to love each other. Help us to love our families, our, 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 our church members, and everyone around us according to the love you've demonstrated, revealed to us on the cross, which is you denied all your rights and willingly 
die for us. And Father, let us walk in the same manner and let us see that this is the path and let us take up the cross and continue and faithfully to follow you. And it's all because that, Lord, you are grateful to us. Uh, you are gracious to us and also you are faithful to us. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.